Creative Babble. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey guys, this is May Javier. Recently on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and even my Patreon supporters, I asked them, what is your all-time favorite pretend episode? And as you can imagine, the responses were all over the place. But there was one series that stood out, and that was The Hijacker. It was a collaboration with my friend Chris Niddle. Now, I don't typically listen to my podcast, but I kind of want to listen to this episode. And so even if it's your first time listening to it, or if you've heard it before, check it out because it is so intense, it's worth revisiting. So here it is, part one and part two of The Hijacker. Your attention, Today's episode is another collaboration with my buddy, my partner, my badass extraordinaire, Chris Niddle with the Burner Phone Podcast. It's 1972, and you're slowly filing into an American Airlines Boeing 727 with 90 other passengers right behind you. A young man going by the name of Robert Wilson enters the plane. I was in the middle of the seat, uh, about seven or eight uh, uh, aisles up from the uh, back of the plane. He may sound like an old man now, but back in 1972, he was a fresh-faced 28-year-old dressed in a sports coat and yellow trousers. Oh, and his name wasn't really Robert Wilson. It was Martin McNally. He wasn't a businessman either. McNally was here to hijack this plane. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. that they'll be landing in 15 minutes at their final destination, but no one is going to Tulsa today. McNally is going to take control of this plane and jump out of it with half a million dollars. But there's still time to call it off, right? Who am I kidding? It's too late for that. So I, I, I sat there and I, I was thinking to myself, well, kid, uh, this is it. Uh, you're either going to do the job now or you can forget about it forever. Uh, pump up your nuts and uh, get it done, or or you're gonna have problems when you, when we land in Tulsa because you're gonna have to get off the plane and you're gonna have this uh, weaponry in your attaché case, and they may have metal detectors there in Tulsa. So after thinking that over very quickly, 
uh, I asked the uh, fellow that was sitting next to me, I said, where's the restroom in this plane? He said, it's in the back on the right-hand side. Uh, men part in, in the back on the right-hand side. I said, okay. So I leaned down and picked up, very, very tenderly picked up my uh, attache case. That thing weighed about uh, at least 20, 20 pounds, maybe, maybe more. McNally makes his way to the bathroom. Once inside, he pulls out a shaggy brown wig, sunglasses, and a sub-machine gun, also known as a grease gun. And then I pull out the gun, and I uh, very, very, very cautiously engage the uh, chamber, chambered one of the uh, one of the bullets. It was ready to go. All I need to do now is pull the trigger, and that thing's going to go off. And then I put on uh, the uh, rubber gloves. And then uh, I opened the door. I got my sunglasses on. I opened the door, closed the door. Now I'm in the back of the plane all the way, and none of the passengers can see me or or are looking at me. So for about uh, at least two or three minutes, I'm trying to wave uh, one of the stewardesses back to me. And she wasn't looking at me, but when she came back, uh, and she did look at me and did see me. The first thing she said was, don't hurt anybody. And I, I told her, I said, young lady, I'm not here to hurt anybody. I got a, uh, a note for the pilot. Take this up to the pilot immediately and come back to me right away. She takes a note to the pilot and quickly returns. McNally tells her to clear some of the seats towards the front of the plane. So there was a, a, a family, a, a dude, his wife, and two kids. He told them, uh, you need to move up to the first class section. Uh, so uh, uh, the, uh, I think the uh, woman, got, woman got up first, the wife, and then I think the daughter got, went, and then a young son, he was about 10 or 11, 12 years old. When the husband got up, that was another another story altogether. When he got up, he was about, I would say, six or seven feet in front of me. He turned around and he was looking at me. Looking at me. He wasn't blinking. I wasn't blinking. And that went on for about 30 seconds. So I know what he's thinking in his brain. I need to take this guy out. And he's thinking that uh, if he can... uh, uh, get me off guard uh, with a blink, blink in my eyes or something. He could quickly charge me. I know what he's thinking. So I took the gun and I pointed it directly at him and gave him my dog growl, like, and he turned around and uh, bucked it up to the first class section at that point in time. Uh, if he had tried something, uh, yeah, this, this, this thing would have kicked off some uh, slugs into his body. And uh, it would have probably killed him uh, because I, I would have done my best to kill him. He sits down. Then the pilot comes on the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot speaking. A passenger needs to return to St. Louis, so we'll need to turn the plane around. So that was the first notice that the passengers had that we were returning to St. Louis. I 
I had a good uh, good upbringing. My my father was uh, prosperous in the shoe business, and uh, he provided uh, everything for the children. Uh, of all the kids, uh, I was the only one that was the black sheep. McNally dropped out of high school and enlisted in the U.S. Navy, where he worked on aircrafts as an electrician. After being discharged from the Navy, he moved back to Detroit and needed money. I was, I was riding around with a friend of, my, with a friend of mine, and uh, I said, uh, I'd like to get some extra money, and I think I can get it uh, uh, just uh, walking out of the store and telling them uh, it's a robbery and uh, get, get, get the money out of the cash registers and go on my way. So without giving it a second thought, McNally walks into the store and asks to buy a pack of cigarettes. While the clerk turns around, McNally whips out a gun and says, so Don't panic. This is a holdup. All the money out of the uh, register. I don't want your wallet uh, or anything else. Just the, just the dollar bills. I don't, know, I don't know why I was doing the stupid stunts, but uh, there were three of them, and I got uh, 50 bucks, 75 bucks, and one time on a Monday evening, 110 bucks. That was really stupid. It's kind of ironic that he robs a gas station because years later, McNally would eventually become an owner of a shell station. One day, while in the car with his pal Jim Petty, he turned up the radio. So, as we were going, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I heard a a news uh, spot uh, on one of the Detroit radio stations. Some guy hijacked a 727 plane and jumped out with $200,000 in cash. He was never seen again. And what they said was, uh, all these skyjackings that are happening, uh, they can solve the problem if they just give everybody uh, or, or get the tickets. They can give them 500000 bucks, and these guys won't be taking these planes. The hijacker he heard about on the radio was none other than the infamous D.B. Cooper. To this day, no one really knows who D.B. Cooper was or if he survived his escape. And when I heard that, I said, oh, my God. And I laughed like hell. And I said, I told uh, Jim Petty, I said, you know, Jim, that wouldn't be a bad way to uh, make some quick money. Just uh, get uh, get a ticket, uh, get on a plane, and uh, get some parachutes and bail out. I mean, what could go wrong, right? And I said, uh, yeah, that would be something. So we were laughing and everything. He was serious about this, but great secrets are apparently hard to keep. His pal Jim told a guy named Paul about McNally's hijacking plans. James Petty said he had a conversation with uh, Paul Zach about uh, what I was uh, thinking about doing. And when he said that, I responded uh, yelling at him. I said, what in the hell are you doing talking to him about this uh, possibility? Because that guy's got the biggest mouth in Detroit, and he's friends with one of the uh, Detroit undercover uh, cops. Well, he says, uh, oh, he won't say anything. Don't worry about it. I said, yeah, all right. I sure hope he doesn't. If this plan was going to work, McNally needed to do his research. I made uh, several uh, several trips to uh, uh, around the country. I went to Chicago, Indianapolis, St. Louis. Uh, I went to Kansas City. Uh, I went to all these different air- airports. 
trying to uh, <laughs> determine which one would be uh, good to uh, take a plane from, which one had uh, less security, and I came up with uh, St. Louis. You have to remember, back in 1972, you didn't need to go through security for domestic flights. Imagine that. There's just one tiny little problem with this plan. McNally doesn't know how to skydive. I never jumped out of a plane before. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, when I made the decision that, yeah, I would be doing a jump, I went uh, over to the uh, local library in my town, and I just uh, I stayed in the library uh, for about five or six hours, and I was getting all these books on parachuting, and what I was looking for was the uh, the calculation to determine when uh, terminal velocity is reached. And I know that I got to get to a point of uh, to open this parachute. I'm, when should I open the parachute? That was the that was the key. And I came I, I came to the conclusion that from ten thousand feet at three hundred miles an hour out of the plane, I would have to delay the opening of the chute approximately. 15 to 20 seconds to reach a speed that wouldn't blow out the panels. And as soon as I came to that, uh, it's an algebraic equation. As soon as I came to that, I took all the books and put them back in their place, and I said, that's it. Now I know uh, how to delay the chute and get it open properly. Next step, he needed a partner. He asked several people, and they said no. And the guy that uh, did agree was uh, Walter Pelikowski of River Rouge, uh, Michigan. First of all, I needed a gun. I'm going to do a score. And uh, he said, I got a gun. So I said, I'd like to see it. And he had a very nice looking rifle. Uh, and uh, I said, I think this will work. So he, uh, he gave me the gun, didn't even charge me. And I told Wall, I says, uh, I'm going to do an aircraft, uh, aircraft skyjacking. And I would like you to go along. And uh, if you do, uh, we'll get uh, two packages of a half a million dollars each. And we can both bail out and uh, watch our back when we, hit the, uh, when we hit the ground. So after less than a month, uh, he says, no, I can't do that. That's too scary. That's too dangerous. I said, all right, well, what I'll do is I'll give you... 25000 bucks if you'll be my uh, chauffeur. So I said, okay, I'll do that. Airport, check. Skydiving 101, check. Gun, check. Partner, hmm, sort of. Finally, McNally needed to buy a ticket, so he bought one for 70 bucks under the name of Robert Wilson. He's all set. Today's the big day. So I took a bath. And uh, got dressed up, uh, got my uh, my tie and my shirt. And I was looking uh, like a businessman. I went up to the ticket counter at the loading area, gave them my uh, pass, and uh, gave them my ticket. So they lo- started loading all the passengers up. There no metal detectors or anything, so uh, I was good to go with what I had in my attache case. So we're back on the plane. At this point, the passengers are starting to realize that the plane has been hijacked and the cash McNally is hoping for is not on board. So they need to land in St. Louis and negotiate 
a new plan. Oh, while, while we're on the ground, I told the uh, stewardesses, I said, we got to get rid of some of these people. we got too many people on this plane. So let's get rid of all the people, uh, all the women and children right now. All the women and children have got to get off the plane. And you can tell the pilot that he can announce that uh, if anybody's got health problems, heart problems, uh, or taking medications and so forth, they can get off too. So what came over the intercom there going to all the passengers was that uh, the pilot said uh, anybody who's got heart problems, they can go too, get up and go too. Well, let me tell you something, Chris. Every Everybody, 100% of the people, 100% of the people on the plane stood up and were ready to book uh, out of the plane. <laughs> I jumped out of my seat. I must have jumped three, four feet in the air. And, and I was screaming, sit down, sit down now. So everybody sat down. Stewardess came back uh, to me and I said, listen. You go up there and you tell that pilot if he pulls another stunt like that, I'm going to come up and I'm going to throttle his ass. You know? No more uh, fun and games. Uh, don't be pulling any more stunts. So I says, we still, we still got to get some people off this plane, all the women and children. And I want to keep about 15 uh, healthy, uh, able men on this plane. So you go ahead and make your choices here, but I, I want 15 men left on this plane. Is that clear? She said, okay, yeah, right. So that's what she did. We, we unloaded the plane with all these people. We had about 15 of them. And she said, what's next? And I said, well, we got to get up in the air. we got to get off this ground. They're going to have FBI snipers all over this place. So uh, the pilot took off got back up in the air and the pilot said is it okay if I fly around St. Louis or get out of the airways of St. Louis and I, I, I said I never talked to him and this was all done through the stewardess I said you can tell the pilot he can fly anywhere he wants to I don't care but uh, yeah we're, we're, we're going to stay in the air until uh, we get all the money ready to go on the ground Okay, so she went up and told the pilot that. She came back and told me that uh, they don't have the money in St. Louis. They, they can't get the money in St. Louis. But we got the money in uh, our main uh, main uh, facilities down in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. So is it okay if we go there? And I, I said, uh, young lady, you can go anywhere you want in the world, but uh, we, we need to get the, the, the half-made house. Remember, this is the early 70s. Half a million dollars was really worth more like three million today. So as we're going, the pilot went uh, full speed. As we're going like that for about five or ten minutes, the stewardess comes back again and tells me, yeah, we're able to get the half million bucks in St. Louis. I said, oh yeah? What, what happened to the 100,000 bucks? That was all they could get. I said, now they got a half million bucks? Well, let's go back to uh, St. Louis and get it. They had a crew change and brought the money and the parachutes on board. As we're on the ground, the pilot uh, came back and he uh, didn't know he, he he sent word that uh, they would like to change crews. 
uh, because these guys have been up all, all day. And I said, yeah, okay, you can change crews. Go ahead and do that. The money was brought on board. He brought in a sack of the money, a mail bag, and I opened it up and I looked in the bag and uh, in the long package it had uh, uh, all the $20 bills. Nine I think it were 9,500 uh, uh, $20 bills. And in the small package, I think there were $100 bills. And $100,000 bills were all new and serialized. So yeah, it would have been hard to spend those bills. They bought the um, parachutes on. We got rid of the uh, first crew uh, and uh, brought in a second crew. And on the second crew, they had put an FBI agent uh, as the uh, flight engineer. Now, as we're on the ground making all these uh, changes to, with the money in the parachutes, I, I suspected, and I was right, that they had uh, brought in uh, a weapon through the uh, window of the cockpit. The pilot had brought in uh, a pistol. And that pistol was uh, uh, meant to uh, kill me if they got a chance. It's now about midnight, and they're ready to take off again. This time, with the money. The pilot uh, starts rolling, uh, starts to give it the gas, uh, throttling up, and then he stops. And he says, there's a truck on the runway, and there's a vehicle on the runway. We're going to have to wait. And he says, oh, my God, it's going to hit us. So, yeah, this, uh, as it turned out, it was a brand spanking new Cadillac run by some guy named Hanley out of St. Louis. You heard right. As they were trying to take off, a car comes out of nowhere and crashes into the plane. Apparently, this David Hanley guy was watching the hijack on the evening news while downing a couple brewskis at the airport lounge. With the help of some liquid courage, he got into his Cadillac convertible and drove through the airport fence and smashed into the wheel of the plane at 80 miles per hour. And he was drunk, drunk as a skunk, drinking and getting drunk and everything. So he stood up and announced to the people that uh, you keep watching this TV, you're going to see something that's going to shake the world. When the, when the Cadillac hit the nose gear, it pushed, pushed me and my seat up about a, a couple of inches. And when it hit the uh, main strut, I moved up again. So I had two bumps on this. But uh, uh, when that happened, I jumped out of my seat and I says, get this fucking plane in the air. I don't need any bullshit. Get in the air. I was telling the stewards that. So the pilot came on the intercom and he says, so we've been hit by a vehicle. We've been hit by, by a vehicle. We can't, we can't take off. Uh, we're going to have to do something else. So I sent word up to him. I says, you tell uh, ground control that we need an aircraft, a 727, any aircraft on this uh, tarmac. But we're going to take it. Whoever, whichever airline t owns it, we're taking it. I want the, uh, the tanks topped off and uh, ready to go, and uh, that's it. So the pilot came on and told them and so forth. So when they got when they got the plane ready, you know, this was taking some time. 
When they got the plane ready, the pilot says, where do you want this thing to park? And I said, put it about two or 300 feet in front of, in front of us. So that's what they did. And uh, I said, we're going to have to make the change. And uh, one, of you, one of you guys is going to have to carry the uh, package of money. But uh, you make sure the FBI knows that when I enter this plane, if I see anybody in this plane crouched in the seats or in the uh, restroom, uh, Johns, I'm going to blow them away on sight. No questions. They're dead. So you make sure the uh, FBI know this. And uh, they did. And uh, we, uh, we, did, we did the uh, transfer. The, the flight crew went first. I had uh, one uh, volunteer hostage. At this time, I only had one. I uh, let everybody else go. And I had uh, one stewardess. I think I, I had one, just one stewardess. It took 90 minutes, but they finally got another plane. So as I'm getting off the plane, I'm the last one to go. These two stewardesses are around me, and I've got my attaché case up covering my face. But they lifted the stairs up, and within a matter of a couple of minutes, we were in the air. As we get as we get in the air, I, I told the uh, told the pilot that uh, fly at uh, ten thousand feet uh, and uh, head for uh, we're going to Toronto. When you hit Toronto Airport, uh, uh, make a pass on the runway about three or four hundred feet, so I can verify that uh, we are in. Uh, at the airport, Toronto, and uh, then we'll uh, rise up uh, to uh, 5,000 feet and go on to uh, JFK uh, in uh, New York. Uh, and uh, I'll come up to the uh, cockpit and give you some uh, radio uh, frequencies, and I will be talking to my partner on the ground. So that's the way it's going to work. Uh, I looked at my watch. I think it was... I think it was close to 2.30, I forget. But I'm looking at my watch, and I said, gee, i got to get out of this plane. We're, we're in, we're, it's the summer, it gets, uh, uh, it gets light early, and these farmers in the area that we're going, uh, they get up early, and i got to go. It was now or never. And as this was going down, there were four girls around me in the back of the plane. And... Uh, uh, I got the harness. I'm getting it strapped in and everything. One of the girls gets on her knees. Her name was uh, Diane uh, Dumois. Diane Dumois, a very nice young blonde, <laughs> the kind of girl I would like to marry, actually. But uh, she's on her knees, uh, helping me with the leg straps, and she looks up to the other three girls and she says, "I don't think we're supposed to be doing this." And I, I looked on her and I says, "Young lady." Trust me, you're supposed to be doing anything that I say. This is this is serious stuff, okay? They lowered the rear stairwell. Earlier, I had the uh, co-pilot lower the uh, stairs on his 727 aircraft. And what he told me was he'd never done this before, so when he does it, he's going to have to uh, jump forward so he doesn't, isn't pulled out, sucked out. So the co-pilot uh, gets on the intercom, and he's talking to the pilot, and he's telling the pilot, slow down, speed up, slow down, speed up. Okay, stop right there. So we're at the speed. 
And at that point there, we're doing about a 300 miles per hour ground speed, 300. And that's the way I like the steps. And the uh, FBI agent was sitting there. Uh, I'm sure he had the gun in his hand. I'm not, I'm not positive, but I think he did have the gun in his hand. Now, I got my gun. It looks like a grease gun, military grease gun, machine gun. And I got that thing there and uh, got my finger on it. And I, I think that was the only thing that deterred him from uh, taking his pistol and shooting a couple of slugs into me to kill me. Now, as I'm getting uh, down the steps very, very cautiously, I mean, seriously, this was rough. The wind turbulence was uh, heavy. I uh, climbed down the stairs on my ass and my feet. I got to the end, and I'm hanging on. I don't have any gun in my hand at this time. I'm hanging on with both my hands, and I get to the bottom of the step, and I put my. I look down. The sky is clear. It's dark and it's clear, and I can see lights on the ground. Now we're at 10,000 feet. The cabin begins to lose pressure. I put both my feet out, and I touch the uh, uh, the wind going over my feet. It's strong. I put both my feet out, and I very slowly ease my body out onto the airstream. Now, I'm, I've got both of my hands on the bottom of the step, and I'm looking towards the earth, okay? There's nothing else on my body uh, connected to the plane except my two hands. And this is 300 miles an hour. So um, I look up, and in my brain I'm thinking, boy, if they, were, if they knew I was in this, this vulnerable situation, hanging on this uh, plane like this uh, and they would just come in, come in here and blow me away and hit me in the head and boom, I'd be dead. It worked. McNally holds on to the bag full of money and let's go. I released my hands and uh, I immediately uh, separated from the plane. Uh, at one point I was thinking, boy, this is, this is nuts. This is really something here. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps 
thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's pick up the story where we last left off. Martin McNally, a 28-year-old, is sitting on the rear stairs of a 727. The pressure is pulling him out. He slowly scoots down the steps. So here's what happened. I put both my feet out, and I very slowly eased my body out onto the airstream. Now, I'm, I've got both of my hands on the bottom of the step and I'm looking towards the earth okay there's nothing else in my body uh, connected to the plane except my two hands and this is 300 miles an hour so um, I look up and in my brain I'm thinking boy if they they knew I was this this vulnerable hanging on this uh, plane like this uh, and they would just come in, come in here and blow me away and hit me in the head and boom, I'd be dead. McNally holds tight to the bag full of money and begins to free fall. I released my hands. And uh, I immediately uh, separated from the plane and I started to turn and somehow my feet were going down to earth at 300 miles an hour. It's the middle of the night and he has no idea where he'll land. Beneath him looks like water. Could it be Lake Michigan? This is all happening really fast. He remembers what he researched in those library books. From 10,000 feet at 300 miles an hour out of the plane, I would have to delay the opening of the chute approximately uh, 15 to 20 seconds to reach a speed that wouldn't blow out the panels. He counts in his head. Somehow I got uh, uh, configured where I was uh, facing uh, Earth and I was just flying down. Uh, at one point I was thinking, boy, this is, this is nuts. This is really something here. I got to get to terminal velocity, which is about 130 miles an hour before I can pull that chute. If he pulls the ripcord too early, the chute will just tear like tissue paper. I was getting ready to pull the ripcord. I uh, moved my right hand in, and I left my left hand out. And because I left my left hand out, I I spun. I went into a spin. And I'll tell you, it was a panic spin because, uh, oh, this is rough, rough. What's what's happening here? Uh, And when it did come out, I was facing Earth. And it popped out uh, probably one or two feet, one to two feet. And it came back up and slammed me in my face. 
is to uh, chip my uh, chin, a little uh, skin uh, bruiser, a little blood, and it blasted my uh, eyes, both eyes, and they were bruised. McNally looks up at the canopy as it pulls him away from the earth. Then he looks down and he realizes that the bag full of money slipped out of his hands. And I looked down and I'll be damned. I saw this package spinning. It was probably about 25 or 30 feet away from me at the time. But the package spinning, it broke away. I started screaming and hollering and my legs were going every which way and my hands were going every which way. And my exact words were, oh, fuck, motherfucker, how did I fucking do this? All this time and money and trouble. Jesus fucking Christ. I said, oh, fuck this. I'm going to follow the money. So I immediately look on the ground. I need I need to get some points on the ground so that I can ve- vector uh, the drop, like uh, a bomb, you know, uh, see where it's going to go. I don't see any, any points on the ground, all right? Uh, at, at that point there, I see this thing, it goes into, not water, but clouds. And I says, damn, I am hit. What now? He's beat up, he lost all his money, and by the time he reaches the ground, there will be hundreds of FBI agents looking for him. What's the point? McNally considered ending it all. I disconnected the left, left leg strap. Boom. I disconnected the right leg strap. Boom, that's loose. Now all I got to do is disconnect the chest strap and let me let myself fall and I'll be dead in a matter of seconds. So, I get the chest strap un- unbuckles and I pull it about uh, two or three inches out and I says, well, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. The money's gone, but I'm still here. The money can be replaced, but I can't. I said to myself, within two weeks, you'll be back up in the air, and you'll get another plane. And you'll do it at uh, the Indianapolis airport. That, ladies and gentlemen, is called persistence. When I landed on the ground, my feet uh, dug in, my head hit hard, and I was listening to listening and watching to see if any farms uh, turn on their lights. Nothing happened. The only thing that was going down is the dogs. Dogs apparently picked up that something something was going. Dogs all over were barking. Woof, 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 woof. Yeah, they knew knew something was uh, uh, screwy little in the area. And uh, I couldn't see anything in front of my face, not even two inches. So... I took the parachute and went deeper into the woods. And I put the uh, parachute under a tree trunk. Uh, and uh, I put some leaves over it. And I climbed into it. And I went to sleep. Went to sleep. So what woke me up was uh, a helicopter. The, the engine, the helicopter engine, rotor. And this thing woke me up about 12 noon. And... The shadow of this rotor went directly over me. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, these fuckers are Johnny on the spot. 
could be it. Oh, by the way, I had to take a poop, so I took a poop in the uh, parachute and squished it in there. I figured if they find the parachute, uh, that's my uh, gift to them. They, they wouldn't like that. A shitty goddamn parachute. McNally jumps over the barbed-wired fence. On the other side of the fence was a gravel road. He could go left or he could go right. It doesn't really matter. I was w- walking uh, along the, the street, and I noticed uh, one car in that Indiana place. I said, okay, somewhere in Indiana place. So I saw another car, Indiana place. Okay, two cars in Indiana. That, uh, yeah, that could mean something. So then I saw a third and a fourth car, and I said, all right, I'm somewhere in Indiana. Whereabouts, I have no idea. What he needs to do is get the hell out of there. It's dark, he's lost, and badly bruised up. He extends his thumb and begins hitchhiking in the direction of the city lights. Nobody's picking me up. But a car comes by and turns around and stops behind me. And this guy gets out. It was a cop in an unmarked car. He gets out and uh, he says, where are you going? And I told him I'm going to Michigan, Detroit. And he says, "Uh, where are you coming from? McNally told him he was coming from a friend's house. Why are you walking? I said, well, I'm hitchhiking and uh, I had a fight with my brother. I came down here uh, to uh, get my brother and we wound up having a fight. He got drunk and uh, we had a fight, got in a scuffle. And uh, he said, what's your name? So I gave my name, Patrick McNally, and uh, he says, can I see some identification? So I showed him my uh, driver's license. It was made out of my brother's name. And uh, I gave, showed him that, and uh, he wrote all that information down. Uh, and uh, he went back to his car. And as he was getting ready to get into his car, he said, uh, uh, would you like a ride into town? Uh, would you like a ride into town? And I said, well, yes, of course. Thank you very much. As I was getting into the car, uh, uh, his wife was there too, but uh, I took my gun and threw, threw it uh, about 20 feet in the uh, field. I didn't want that gun with me. McNally doesn't know this at the time, but that wasn't just a police officer. He was the town's police chief. I threw the gun and got in the car, and as we were driving along, she said, things are pretty uh, pretty hot uh, right now. There's a lot of police uh, looking. Uh, I said, yeah, I know. I heard about it. There was a skyjacking, and uh, uh, I, guess he, I guess they figure he's in the area. This sounds like a bunch of BS, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I'm amazed that the chief of police didn't, uh, didn't take me in for some... What are the chances that this guy jumps out of a plane, lands, and gets picked up by the police chief and gets away with it? Unbelievable. Well, it's true. Every word. I pulled a New York Times article from June 30th, 1972. Sure enough, chief of police for Peru, Indiana, picked up Martin McNally and dropped him off at a motel and then just drove off without questioning this guy's story. By the way, the chief of police eventually became the mayor of Peru, Indiana. After getting dropped off at the motel, McNally's hungry. He 
and wants to grab a bite to eat. So I walked into the bar, sat down, and uh, ordered a beer, uh, and uh, was looking around the bar, and there was about 10 people in the bar. And I was in there for about at least 45 minutes. But, uh, yeah, these people was, uh, were starting to look at me. I ordered a total of two beers and one hamburger. So while I'm in the bar, I go into the uh, restroom, and I look in the mirror, and I was shocked. My face was really screwed up. And uh, so I brushed my hair, uh, put water on my hair, and uh, tried to clean myself up a little bit. But, yeah, I, I'm amazed that the chief of police didn't, uh, didn't take me in for some fucking questioning. The next morning, McNally calls his buddy Walter. Now, Sunday comes along, and I call Walter Pelikowski, and I tell him, I tell him, Walt, this is Mac. Listen, well, he was shocked, shocked to hear me. He said, damn, I heard, heard I thought you got killed. I said, well, I'm, I didn't get killed, I'm alive, and uh, I need some help. I need some help. Uh, you need to come down to where I am right now. So I gave him the address. I gave him the address, and uh, I thought he was going to be coming down, so I'm waiting for him. This this is uh, Sunday. I'm waiting for him. Nothing happens. So uh, on Monday, I call him, and I I, I said, uh, Walt, uh, I need to get out of here. I need I need you your help. You're going to have to get down here to Pooh, Indiana, to this hotel. I said, there's no other way. Walter doesn't arrive in Peru, Indiana until Tuesday. Let's go. So, he got on the, got on the road and he was driving. And after we got uh, about a half a mile down the road, I relaxed at that time there and I said, uh, boy, this was a rough situation here, dude. But man, I'm telling you. And I told him all about getting stopped by the chief of police. We got an I-70 going east and... Uh, uh, that's it, to beat home. Take I-70 east and uh, take that to I-75 north and uh, we're right into uh, home, home stretch. Once back home in Detroit, McNally calls his friend James Petty. So I called him and uh, he was uh, surprised to uh, hear, hear my voice and everything, but uh, <clears throat> I told him, uh, yeah, we should, go out for, we should go out for some coffee. When we were done with our coffee, we went back to Petty's house, and uh, he got he got out uh, and stood on me uh, on the, in the front door area and looked at me and said, "Okay, Mac, I'll see you later." And that's really weird because Petty didn't invite him in. Something was up. Now this was unusual because uh, on prior uh, occasions I would always go into the house and talk to him and his wife and sit down and relax for a little bit. But uh, this this was different. Unbeknownst to me, he had already had contact with the FBI. Balzac told the FBI, you need to go uh, talk to James Petty. And they, they gave him, he gave him his address. So the cops, the FBI went to uh, Petty talked to him, and he denied knowing everything. He, he denied everything. But what happened is that uh, James Paulzak, 
call to his undercover uh, contact in the uh, Detroit uh, Sheriff's Office. He called him and says, I think I know who pulled that uh, skyjack in St. Louis. Gritsky immediately called the FBI in Detroit. He says, I think I know who got that plane in St. Louis. The guy's name is Martin McNally. He's from Wyandotte, Michigan. So the FBI went back to uh, James Betty. And at that point there, he says, when the FBI threatened him with the prosecution for being an accessory, he said, all right, I'll tell you what I know. So what, they had a uh, car there uh, with uh, some uh, FBI agents that were a couple of couple of cars down from where me and Paul uh, uh, Petty were. So I, I knew something was up at this time. And when I was got to my house, I drove by really slow, and I looked in the driveway, and there was a car in my driveway. Well, I didn't stop at my house. I was going to keep going. And I got about 10 feet, 10 or 15 feet in front of my house. And a car popped out, popped out in front of me. And I knew at that point, it was, it was I was hit. So the FBI uh, popped out and they had all these guns and pistols and everything else pointing at me. And there were a bunch of them, probably 20 of them. And they're screaming, Get out of the car, get out of the car, get out of the car. Put your hands up, put your hands up. So the FBI guy, Neil Welch, he says, uh, Martin McNally, you're being arrested for suspicion of aircraft piracy. And I said, what's that? And he says, well, now that we have you arrested, is it okay if we go into your house and look around? And I said, no goddamn way can you go into my house. You better have a search warrant. Uh, and if you've already entered my house, you can forget about having any fucking case against me because you got an illegal search. So, yeah, well, as it turned out, Chris, uh, they had entered Mike's house before my arrest. They had uh, entered that house, and they noticed a lot of stuff in there <clears throat> related to airplane hijackings. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I got screwed. The FBI screwed me good, and uh, I got nothing for them. They're all fucking corrupt mother bastards. Okay, folks, there you have it. This is where the story ends. Just kidding. The story is about to get crazier, if that's even possible. McNally goes to court and is found guilty of air piracy and was given a life sentence, which at the time meant 30 years in prison. He's taken to a U.S. penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. This was the country's first supermax prison, which was the home to some of the country's most dangerous criminals. And as luck would have it, he shared a cell with another hijacker named Garrett Trapanel. This was a deadly combo. In January of 1978, he stopped by my cell. He says, Mac, how would you like to leave uh, leave here uh, in a helicopter? And I says, uh, well, I'll tell you what, uh, yeah, I'd like to do that, but uh, I'll need to know more deta- details. So uh, and Gary says, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. Here's the plan. Trapnell's lady friend on the outside was a former Army staff sergeant. Her name was Barbara Oswald. She was in love with Trapnell. She'd do anything for him. 
The plan was for Barbara Oswald to commandeer a helicopter and break them out of prison. Hijacking got them in here. It was also going to get them out. So what happened? On May the 23rd, he had this about maybe noon, one o'clock or so. But when he finished with the visit, he came in, I was in my cell, and he says, are you ready to go? I says, well, I'm always ready. Uh, when? <laughs> and he says, tonight. I says, well, uh, I guess so. So I knew uh, uh, this was going to be rough because the woman has to be 150% alert. All of us not like this. Barbara Oswald was a pro, and she knew her way around helicopters. While in the Army, she was an air traffic controller in a helicopter squadron. Barbara Oswald hired a helicopter to survey land for real estate. Once up in the air... She pulled off his headset and showed him the gun and told him, we're going to the penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. We got uh, people that we need to release. Meanwhile, back at the Marion Penitentiary, the boys were making their move. We had count that day at 4 o'clock. And usually after count, uh, they have uh, lunch, and then they open the yard. Today, uh, on March 23rd, the yard didn't open, but I had gone out into the corridor and looked to see if the yard opened. I went back to Trav and I said, the yard's not open. I don't know what's happening. There's a delay about something. I, I hope we aren't, uh, I hope we aren't uh, dead in the water here. So I think uh, it was about, uh, oh, maybe a quarter to five when the yard opened up. They're waiting with their heads up turned to the sky. And at, at approximately 6 p.m., this helicopter came over the prison. I said, that's it. That's our ride. So I said, I'll give you the call when, when they make the run. And what happened is the uh, helicopter turned south, uh, and it was supposed to go south about two miles. And then it was supposed to come in at 5,000 feet and go south about two miles and then drop to uh, 2,000 feet and come into the prison at uh, full speed. Back in the helicopter? So the pilot disconnected his transponder so that they couldn't uh, track the uh, helicopter and started going to Marion. Now, when they got to Marion, like I say, they turned south and uh, they went south about a couple of miles and he turned around heading back towards the penitentiary. And that's when he told Barbara, you need to open the door, Jimmy, it open so that uh, they can get in here. So did we land. Now, when uh, when Barbara looked to the left, she was going to open up the left door. He noticed that she, she was looking at the door, and he was she wasn't looking at at the uh, pistol. So he turned around. He released his controls on the chopper. He took he turned around in his seat and grabbed the gun. And the gun fired off a forty-four caliber slug that went past his head, I believe, and blew a big hole in the, in the, in the door. So there's a big hole in there. And this chopper is out of control. I mean, they're, 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 
there's a struggle in here. And they're coming down fast. I mean, this is life and death. So Barbara says, uh, that's okay. I got more, more, more weapons. So she leans down and opens up her attache case to get a weapon. And Alan Barclay takes her gun and unloads into her body. And I believe he hit her twice in the head, twice in the skull, and twice in the chest. So as this as this uh, helicopter is coming in, he still continues to come into the penitentiary. Now, if he had just taken her dead body back to St. Louis, uh, we'd have been okay. Uh, probably, maybe. Remember, McNally has no clue what went down in the helicopter. They're only about 400 feet away from the from the uh, penitentiary. And I, I, I flagged Grapnell uh, and Kenny. I says, now. I screamed out loud. I says, now, move. So we started running fast as our little legs could carry us. And I'm telling you, we were running fast. It felt like we were running slow in slow motion. But as it was, me and uh, Kenny and Trap, we got into place, and uh, I got uh, I got on a uh, yellow. Uh, I got I was standing on a yellow jacket. Okay, I'm standing on a yellow jacket, and I'm jumping up and down, waving my hands to get the attention of the pilot because he's supposed to come right over me and drop into this area. And there's there's uh, sufficient areas for the rotors. He can get into this area. So I'm jumping up and down. After a, a short time, a couple of minutes, whatever, um, I hear the rotors turning down. And I said, uh, said to these two dudes, I says, we got a problem. I think we've been set up here because that, that chopper is shutting down. I said, we need to get back into the yard. Uh, by the time they had an investigation, a couple hours later, uh, they came to Trapnell and says, "Yeah, we we uh, this is over, and your girlfriend Barbara Oswald is dead out in a helicopter out front." This is a news report with the helicopter pilot Alan Barklage. Alan Barklage flew helicopters in Vietnam, occasionally picking up wounded soldiers. Barklage had been hired by a woman to fly her to Cape Girardeau, but in the air she pulled a gun and ordered him to fly to the federal prison in Marion, Illinois. She wanted to pick up three convicts as part of a prison break. Barklage foiled the escape attempt by letting go of the controls, grabbing the gun and killing the woman, all in midair. It was a story reported all over the world. I would say the dominating thought that I have when I think back on that is uh, there may have been a way to do that without shooting a person. That still bothers Right. Was there a way I could have done it? You know, could I have talked her out of it? It was a, a tragic situation. It shouldn't have gone down as it did. I was released on January the 27th of 2010. So what happened to the bag filled with half a million dollars that dropped out of the sky? 
farmer, a farmer in uh, Peru, Indiana, uh, found it out. He had a 20-acre a bean farm. And his annual income from his bean farm was probably about under $10,000. Now, here's what happened on this. Uh, the old man was out in his bean farm, and he noticed this uh, container. And he noticed it had AA on it, on the, on the um, money bag. So this is about 10 o'clock in the morning, okay, 10 o'clock, 10.30. So he doesn't call. He, he, he pretty much knew what it was. He didn't call the FBI or the uh, cops. So the old man went out to the farm and watched over the bag. When the uh, youngster got there, the youngster came out and looked at it. He opened it up, and he said, oh, you know what this is? This is the money they gave that skyjacker. And the old man said, yeah, I think so, too. What should we do? And the youngster says, well, we better call the sheriff. Uh, so the old man said, okay, okay. I'll tell you what. The old man had larceny in his heart. I'm sure if the youngster said, well, what we need to do is put this in uh, a closet and uh, not say anything to anybody about this, and just see how this develops, because we may be able to get a big reward if we turn this in, or maybe we can just keep the money. Uh, the old man called the sheriff, and within a matter of minutes, they had FBI agents there, they had local police, they had the news media there. They were all over it. 500000 bucks in cash to the dollar, 500,000 bucks turned in. Now, what happened is that a lot of the people who knew this family called them and said, you stupid fucking people. You had money from God, from heaven, and you didn't have to turn this in. You could have kept it and kept quiet. And as it is, they offered you $10,000 reward, and what did you do? You refused to take it. You wanted at least 5%, so you got an attorney. And the attorney told you, you can't sue these people. It's, that's gratuitous, and they don't have to give you shit. So they finally accepted the $10,000. But the the uh, wife of the old man told the media that this destroyed her family. I guess it would. Everybody knows you're retarded now. And, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the wife said that, yeah, this destroyed the family. So... Uh, the old man that uh, actually found the uh, package, uh, he died years ago. I think he was about 62 years old at the time. But he's, he's dead and gone, and uh, the chief of police is dead and gone. The clerk in the hotel in Peru, Indiana, she's dead and gone. The judge that sentenced me is dead and gone. And uh, most of the people involved in the case are dead and gone. And I'm still alive and cooking and happy, happy as hell. And uh, drinking my wine and my beer. And uh, just uh, loving life, loving freedom. All right, guys. That was part two of The Hijacker. And I'm back with Chris Niddle from the Burner Phone Podcast who produced this episode, who actually was on the phone 
with uh, Martin McNally for two and a half hours. And I'm telling you, if you listen to the two and a half hours, it was riveting. So, um, Chris, tell me, you know, I think one of the biggest moments or one, one of the many biggest moments in this episode was when McNally just drops the cash. I mean, I didn't see that coming. You know, he actually got on the plane, jumped off with the cash and then drops it. Yeah. When he pulled the chute, the, um, the money wasn't, wasn't secured properly to his body and the leather straps that were holding the satchel broke off. And so he saw the money just flying in midair about, you know, 30 meters below him, whatever the distance was, but he could see the money disappear. And, you know, I've been skydiving twice and I totally get it because um, if you've never done it before, you know, your arms, if you could picture this, your arms have to be kind of spread out and mm-hmm. kind of behind your head where your hands are behind your head. Because if you even move one of your arms like forward, you, you basically are creating like a spin and you will spin uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could totally see how that that moment he just lost control of the cash. I mean, that must have been a horrible feeling. Yeah. I mean, imagine just all of the, the work and time and effort he put into pulling off this heist only to see the money disappear. I can't imagine what he was feeling. Would you have taken the money? <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> uh, no comment. Well, I'll tell you what, man, I've given this some thought and I'm sure that everybody that listened to the episode probably asked themselves that same question because it's fair, right? You know, money just fell out of the sky. Sure. And I got to tell you, man, I don't think I would take that money just because it would be marked or, you know, it would, it would just, with my luck, <laughs> I would totally get busted, you know, like a week later. Okay. So the next question I want to ask you is this Garrett Trepnell guy that was actually his, his inmate, um, or his roomie in, uh, Marion penitentiary. Like, tell me about this guy. Cause this guy has a fascinating backstory, right? Sure. Yeah. So Trapnell was a, he was a con man. He was a bank robber. He was a high hijacker, just like McNally. And they became friends in Marion and they schemed this escaped attempt. It's funny because, you know, I mentioned in the, in the episode that hijacking got them in. Hijacking's going to get them out. And so they uh, cooked up the scheme with uh, Barbara Oswald, which was apparently, you know, Trepnell's girlfriend on the outside. But like these guys never met in person. They they kind of formed this relationship while in prison. Right. Barbara Oswald and uh, and Garrett Trapnell. I'm sure she was visiting him. I, I'm pretty sure yeah. she was coming in to visit him, but they fell in love and he was a master manipulator and he was able to, to convince her to, to hijack the helicopter. And that's crazy because you hear that all the time of like, you know, these like people falling in love with prisoners through love letters and stuff. But like this woman was willing to risk her life you know, to break this guy out. But then we didn't even cover this in the episode, but it gets even more ridiculous because after that whole helicopter incident, what happened next? Right. So after Barbara passed away, Trapnell convinced Robin Oswald, who was Barbara, Barbara's daughter, to do another hijacking. He said he told Robin that he was actually her father. And he manipulated her and she believed it. And she was only 17, right? Yeah. So, so Robin in the hijacking attempt, it was December 21st, 1978. 
And at 17 years old, she hijacked a TWA Flight 541, and she demanded for Trapnell to be freed. And she had dynamite strapped to her body. And um, the FBI negotiators were able to free the prisoners and have, you know, um, Oswald surrender. There was no injuries or death. And what's crazy is that the bomb, the supposed bomb that was strapped to her chest was actually railroad flares. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy, man. Like the, the that guy, we should just do another episode on <laughs> Garrett Trapp now, huh? I mean, he sounds crazier yeah. than McNally. Yeah, he passed away. I think he passed away in 91. But mm. yeah, he, he's got he's got quite the interesting story, right? Yeah. Well, this this was a fascinating, you know, time in history. Obviously, hijacking is not, you know, nobody wants to glorify it. Right. Uh, and hijacking is definitely a lot different now than it was back then. But it's definitely a moment in time that that, you know, has kind of been forgotten or not talked about much. So I'm so glad that you brought this to us and that we were able to hear this story firsthand. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for for helping me out with this and collaborating on this. It's been a it's been a learning experience, and and like you said, it is a it is a moment in time. They call it the golden age of skyjacking, as we talked about earlier. So, Chris, do you know uh, if did you ask him if he's been on a plane recently? I did. I asked him about that, and he he told me that he's too paranoid. He's too paranoid to even step on a plane. He's. He's worried about Homeland Security agents and uh, popping up on a watch list. Um, but sometimes he'll walk into an airport and just kind of look around, just kind of reminisce and and watch security and watch the people go through the motions. It's really bizarre. But he actually hasn't been on a plane since 1972. That's wild. Well, Chris, thank you so much, man. I hope we could keep this collaboration going. Uh of course. Yeah, man. I can't wait to he hear what you cook up next. Yeah, I look forward to it. Creative Babble.